welcome to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks, perspectives in medicine. During our program, we continue to cover a variety of hot topics in the sports medicine world and more. Welcome everyone to our UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, 68 Weeks Perspectives on Sports Medicine, where we cover hot topics in sports medicine and society. Today, we're going to be talking about ACL surgery and ACL graft choices. Now, in the realm of orthopedic care, understanding the nuances of ACL graft options becomes a pivotal aspect of informed decision-making for patients. The ACL is extremely important in knee stability, and when faced with an ACL tear, the path to recovery often involves ACL reconstructive surgery. The surgical procedure aims to replace the function of the ligament, but the choice of what you use, what type of graft you use, may vary from patient to patient, and you may have different outcomes. Autographs such as patella, hamstring, and quad offer different anatomical sources and harvesting methods and come with their own sets of pros and cons. Patients' concerns such as the speed of return to sports, performance ability, and graft failure rate further add to the complexity of the decision in terms of what graft you should get for ACL surgery. Delving into these intricacies empowers orthopedic patients to navigate their journey to recovery with a deeper understanding of the nuances of what we do on the surgical side. So whether you're an orthopedic patient seeking answers or just fascinated by the intricacies of knee health, stick around for this enlightening episode on ACL graft options, and you can check out other episodes at 6-8weekspodcast.com. I'm joined today by Dr. Brian Feely and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, where we'll be talking about this topic, and I'll open it up to Brian. What exactly is happening during ACL surgery? You hear athletes get it, your neighbor got it. What's actually going on from a surgeon's standpoint? ACL surgeries are really common. There's over a quarter million done annually just in the United States. And for the vast majority of them, probably more than 95 to 97%, it's an ACL reconstruction, meaning we're not repairing it. We're not putting your old ACL back together. We're giving you a new one. And I think that's where a lot of the decision-making comes in. One, who are the minority that we are going to repair? And that's largely kids where they fracture with a piece of bone attached to their ACL, occasionally doing a repair in the acute setting, which has gotten a lot of press recently with Martha Murray and the Boston Children's Group and the Bear Trial, where you can put in essentially something in to help the ACL heal. But most of the time, and for a vast majority of people, we are removing most of the prior ACL and giving you a new one. And Drew, in the past, there had been questions about, can you use something synthetic, like some Gore-Tex material? Why doesn't that work? Like, wouldn't that be a great option? You don't have to take any tissue. You're not putting cadaver tissue in. What are, what are the outcomes of using something synthetic? Yeah, so there used to be a lot of interest in trying that. And, you know, maybe at some point in the future, we develop a better material. But the downside is that synthetic material doesn't remodel. And then the body can react to it depending on what it is. And some of those just failed catastrophically and you have a huge reaction in the joint and then uh, kind of destruction of the joint as a result. And so it's just that we don't really have a synthetic material that can reliably recreate the properties of a ligament, can remodel over time to the forces it sees and be inert in the knee. So it's not fatiguing over time, failing over time or having these other reactions. And then a follow-up to that, I mean, why do we even need to reconstruct or repair it in the first place? Like people tear their MCL, they tear their LCL, and it heals on its own. Brian, is there something specific about the ACL that doesn't allow it to heal on its own? I like to think of it as real estate. Your MCL sits outside the joint, which is a very good area for real estate. Your MCL heals more than 95% of the time. You have an environment where both the MCL itself plus the blood supply plus the lack of synovial fluid allows it to heal and largely have essentially a knee that goes back to normal. The ACL is the opposite. It's very bad real estate. It's in an inhospitable environment 
once it tears, it physically falls away from where it's attached. So it isn't structurally where it should be. It's not like it just stretches out. So it needs to be physically put back on. And then the synovial fluid or the fluid in the joint is made to inhibit scar tissue, essentially. Because you can imagine if you scarred up as you were learning to walk and learning to bend and use your arms, you would never move again after the age of three because you had landed on your knee so much if it had scarred. So once your ACL is torn, it is not going to be able to heal itself. And so you basically made the decision, a patient comes in, you know, they were skiing, they tear their ACL, and they're going to get that reconstructive surgery. They're not a candidate for a repair. What are the options kind of globally, Drew, for reconstructing it? You know, like, how do you kind of talk to this patient and say, hey, we're going to reconstruct this. Here are your options. The first two are really deciding whether you use your own tissue or cadaver tissue. So autograft is your own tissue. Allograft is sourced from a cadaver donor tissue. I think we'll get into that more as we go, but that's like the first main division. And then after that, within using your own tissue within those autograft, the three most common uh, would be the patellar tendon, hamstring tendon, or quadriceps tendon. And for ACL surgery, we'll use a tendon. So it's a different structure than a ligament, like what the ACL normally is. But we're able to borrow those tendons, use those to substitute as the ACL, and then it models over time into something similar to what the ACL used to be. So maybe, Brian, because you're, you're the basic science person with us, how, how does a tendon become a ligament? I mean, that's what patients ask all the time. You're taking something, it becomes a ligament. Like, why don't you just use a ligament to replace a ligament? Why are you using a tendon? I think it's a source question. Your tendons are a little bit more redundant. Ideally, we would use ligament, but where do you get it from? Just backing up a little bit, a tendon connects muscle to bone, ligament connects bone to bone. Did I get that right? Yeah, I got that right. Yeah, um, that's it. So in your body, there are a variety of different places where there is some redundancy, especially in your hamstrings, but also around your foot. At some places in Asia, we'll use, use one of your perineal tendons. And the reality is they are very, very similar in terms of overall structure. They're full of collagen. They have a little bit of a blood supply. But once we take it out and then put it in an ACL, the same thing is going to happen regardless. It essentially acts as a biologic scaffold for new cells to grow down that new ligament or tendon and then eventually get its own blood supply and eventually get its own neurologic supply. So you end up with the ability to have a ligament that's structurally solid within the knee. It has a blood supply, so it can remodel through micro injuries, and it has nerves, so it is able to feel those small amounts of micro instability and report back to the brain that the knee is shifting in an uncomfortable manner, and then that's when you change your landing mechanics. From that standpoint, if you are taking something away, Drew, like are patients weaker on that side and does the tissue actually grow back? I mean, that's a concern a lot of people have and you'll get people say, hey, why don't you use a cadaver tissue because I'm worried about this not growing back or being weaker. What what do you tell patients who are concerned about that? Some of the tissue does grow back. Hamstrings, like one of the nice things with the hamstrings is they're all essentially like one big muscle and there's a bunch of tendons attaching at the knee. So the muscle still stays and then you're just decreasing those number of tendon attachments. If you set somebody up on a strength machine and test their best strength, you do lose some. But for most activities, even higher level activities, that like 3%, 5% difference may be imperceptible in everything you do. And then things like the patellar tendon, the quadriceps tendon, we take like a section of it, 
but then the body remodels that over time and ends up getting even thicker over time. Um, not better than it used to be, but just your body kind of fills in what was once there before. Realistically, one of the problems is that if you're taking part of your body, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, neither of who I know who they are, but it is true. But practically, it doesn't really make that much of a difference for a majority of the people in terms of what you're losing. And I think when I was training, we were told you can't do hamstring in sprinters, catchers, or cornerbacks. Sprinters because they have hamstring strains. Okay, maybe. But realistically, the sprinters weren't the ones tearing their ACL. Catchers, because you use your hamstrings and glutes to pop up. Absolutely true. Cornerbacks, because they take their first steps backwards, and that's largely using your hamstrings. But over time, it turns out that that was just what we said. We didn't have any data for it. Now, when we look back, all these subgroups have had hamstring ACLs and are doing absolutely fine. So it's challenging because we have these old paradigms of who should get what graft based on essentially anecdotal evidence, but yet the reality is still there. Your hamstrings are going to be slightly weaker. Your extensor mechanism, if you take something from the front of the knee, is going to feel slightly different and slightly weaker, and the tissue you put back in is not the same as what you were born with. You know, even though we were talking about kind of using patients' own tissues, I mean, one of the things we brought up was cadaver tissue, as we kind of refer to it as allograft. When do you offer that to patients? From a pediatric standpoint, we, we don't offer that because there's a very high failure rate with using allograft tissue. But what circumstances would you say, look, this is a good option for doing your ACL reconstructive surgery, Drew? So what we've learned is that risk of failure of re-tearing the ACL after ACL reconstruction, it's much higher in kids with cadaver tendon versus adults. And so that risk, it decreases with age. Really, once you're older than 40, some people will say 35, but past 40, that failure rate is pretty similar between the autograft and allograft tissue to where if somebody wants that, I think it's a very reasonable option. If you're 15 it's much higher and it's not worth going through the surgery, through the rehab, if you're already setting yourself up for, I think, uh, for a high failure rate. Over the age of 40 is when I really start discussing that more. I think the main thing is that autograft is still better at all these time points, but the difference between the two is much, much less to where it's essentially negligible the older you get. Yeah. So I've got a question for you guys. Why is that? So allograft fails in kids, but kids heal better. So we over, you know, for anything else we talk about, we say, hey, kids are great. They heal better. They heal faster. And old people, meaning people over the age of 49 and a half, don't heal as well. So why would we do cadaver in people that don't heal well and autograft in people who do heal well? You know, inherently, I think autograft tissue is going to be structurally a little bit stronger than cadaver tissue, and the, it's going to hold up to the force of activity. So theoretically, if you got a 16-year-old in who's not very active and is not going to strain their graft, then allograft theoretically could potentially have the same outcome as someone who's 49 or 50. So I think it's a combination of, number one, the the stress they're putting across the graft, and I think number two, and this is really hard to prove, but 
you know, I do feel that with allograft ACLs, people feel better sooner and they have a tendency to do more than they should. And that leads to stretching of the graft and potentially late failures. Some of the cadaver ACLs that I've got referred in that were done in pediatric patients, they have a tendency to fail at year two, year three. They don't have that traumatic injury. So I think that there potentially is some stretching out going on because patients are getting back to activity quicker. And that's the reason. But I don't think there's been a good study that looks at why it fails. I don't know if you, you're aware, Drew. I think that's just kind of what we think theoretically. Yeah, I think a lot of it, it seems like the cadaver tended, it may not remodel as much, like that capability to remodel itself, strengthen, change its properties seems to be better with the autograft tissue, possibly. Like that could be one reason why. And then I think a lot of it too is like what those patients are doing. And then I've always wondered too, if there's something where if you tear your ACL at a young age, like your knee may be different than if you tear it at 50 and the forces across the ACL may be different. And so we may be selecting out something like that. Like if you made it to 50 with your ACL, it may just not be stressed in the same way as that 15 year old who tore theirs. And, but yeah, definitely like, I think it's a really interesting question and we probably don't know for sure why it happens, but that's what, you know, studies have shown that those failure rates are higher. So I think it gives a lot of us pause in considering it for younger patients for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Drew brings up a really good point in that if you're a kid that tears their ACL, especially a second ACL, there may be something morphologically about your bones. So Drew's done a lot of interesting work in looking at your bone shape that may predispose the younger athlete. And then you look at the older athletes, the people who are essentially usually skiers or recreational soccer players, that may be like a combination of small injuries plus one other big injury at the very end. And they may be two entirely grouped entirely different groups of people, but we tend to group them together. And hopefully as we get more data, we'll get more sophisticated on who really can get cadaver tissue because it's, it is an easier recovery. And are there other factors, whether intrinsic to the ACL, the bone shape to the patient's genetics that would allow us to tailor our choices a little bit more, but we're just not there yet. Speaking of tailoring choices, so you we've got these three autograft options. You know, you've got quad, you've got uh, patellar tendon, and you've got hamstring. So, you know, if a patient comes in, Brian, and we'll kind of put age aside, but in general, how do you counsel them in terms of what what are the pros and cons of each graft? And maybe then Drew can kind of give his his take as well too. Without making it take too long, I say there's three choices. You can use hamstring. Hamstring is convenient because we make the incision the same place we're going to make the incision anyway for the tibial tunnel. It is the strongest graft, and it it allows for the most redundancy in terms of size, meaning if we want something that's at least eight millimeters in diameter, we can essentially continue to fold it until we get something at least eight millimeters in diameter. So it's relatively easy and forgivable. And I think it's the easiest recovery. We can take your bone patellar tendon bone, which is an incision on the front of the knee. It allows us to, again, use essentially the same incision that's a little bit bigger. It has the advantage of bone healing at the start. So you'll be able to get back to early activities a little bit faster. Although for me, it isn't an earlier return to sports. That's still going to be about eight months. The principal downside is that there's decent studies that show 15, 20 years down the line, you're at increased risk for knee osteoarthritis, but it is a very valid graph. And then the third option is quadriceps. Quadriceps is functional. It has very few downsides in terms of being able to use at the time of surgery. It's very strong. It will always be thick enough to be your graft. The downside is we don't have long-term data, at least in the United States. But when you look head to head, 
all of these work extremely well and all have the same success rate if you throw out the outliers in any of these studies. And then it goes down to my personal preference. I think hamstring is easier to rehab and the downstream consequences, both short-term and long-term, allows us to, I think, have a more predictable outcome. And Drew, what's your take on all this? I think very similar overall. And I think a lot of it, the incisions are different. So sometimes patients, they have a preference about how those incisions look or what that pattern is. I think strongest I feel is still the BTB and that like you can get bony healing, which is a little different than soft tissue healing. And that I think that has some advantages. And then I think the predictability of size of the BTB and quad is nice. But I think the main takeaway point is they all will work really well. If you look at really big studies, the failure rates, like you can argue tenths of a percentage point, and there may be something like that with regards to a difference, but they're really basically the same. And so if there is some part of that, that, you know, some patient feels better about, that's probably the right choice for them. Hamstring will probably have the least amount of pain early on. BTB probably has the most early pain, but even that's just for a few days and probably not too much of a game changer in making a decision. Yeah, I think in reading Reddit, there's a lot of data on whichever way the Reddit winds are blowing. Is that data? Is that data? (laughs) People say like, well, I looked at this study. Reading Reddit and there's data. Those don't. (laughs) Two separate. (laughs) So, but this is where it comes up is somebody will say, well, I read this study and it said, this graph had a higher failure rate. And that's where you have to look at something called the fragility index. So when you look at that, it's how many patients would need to be in success group versus failure group and move them over for the study to lose validity. And in many of these cases, one to two patients moving in one direction or the other will mean that there's no statistical difference between these groups. And largely when we look at these success rates, we're talking 92.1 versus 90.7. That isn't going to make a germane difference. So largely it comes down to what are you comfortable with What are the advantages and disadvantages for you as a patient? And what do you think is going to be the most straightforward recovery? And to a certain extent, what is your surgeon most comfortable with? If your surgeon says, I am most comfortable with quad tendon, I've done 300 of them in the last three years, and you say, I demand a hamstring, maybe it's the right time to find somebody that does hamstrings. I agree. And I think that we, a lot of patients will think about, oh, I've read this paper, I read that paper. It's, yeah, I agree. It's what's the surgeon most comfortable with? The rehab, I think, is critical. You know, I think that that's really, really key in terms of retail rates. Like, very rarely do you get someone who does phenomenal rehab and you're like, oh, it was that BTB graph that's the reason why I failed. You know, there's, it's, it's going to be a lot of rehab. And then I think a third thing as well, too, is there's a lot of other things that we can now add on to an ACL to help decrease the re injury rate. There's stuff you can do laterally in terms of tightening up structures. Then there are also various suture materials that you can potentially put in with the ACL to strengthen it. So I think it's more about all those other factors controlling them as opposed to necessarily the graph. But obviously, patients are going to come in with their different opinions and desires. And I think it's appropriate for us to say what the pros and cons are. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of it is the external factors, not necessarily what was put in there internally. It's somewhat crazy with all the different intraoperatives and preoperative decision making that goes on. We give patients this one important choice but there's no choice in the other things. And it's fallen out of favor now, but it used to be we would do two dramatically different ACLs. One would be a transtibial ACL, which led up to 15% of people with rotational instability. You weren't really given an option in whether or not you would get an ACL that way or one with 
kind of the more standard portal drilling now, but we would still get stuck on this graft choice when really that was less of a issue than I think a lot of patients thought. No, Nara, I think- I've got a question for you since you ki- deal with kids. I'm going to ask you a situation. 14-year-old linebacker, it's the end of the football season, doesn't really play spring sports, but wants to get back to summer camp football, already is being considered to play in college, loves sports, doesn't want to stop. What's your graph choice for that 14-year-old middle linebacker? I think number one, a lot of it will vary based on whether their growth plates are open or not. You know, So for a pediatric patient, if their growth plates are open, one of the issues is that you're drilling holes potentially across a growth plate or near the growth plate. So if it is someone whose growth plates are open, you can't use a patellar tendon graft because there's bone on each end, uh, you know, kind of each end of the graft and bone near the growth plate or across a growth plate can cause a growth disturbance. So then you're really then stuck with if the growth plates are open, are you going to do a hamstring or are you going to do a quadriceps graft? And what I'm thinking about is where can I get more predictable size? I think in general, as long as it's a soft tissue graft, a quad versus a hamstring, I usually will offer a quad to that football player. You know, you can do it in a way in which you're kind of going away from the growth plate. And I think the stress is across it. I can more predictably get, you know, a larger size graft that'll still protect their growth. Hamstrings, people ask, well, when do you, would you use hamstrings? I think when I do get those very, very young patients, say like a six, seven, eight, nine, or 10 year old who's torn their ACL, I will go hamstrings for them because it's still soft. And we just don't know what happens if you take a large portion of the quad out from someone that young. And a lot of times that tendon is actually pretty small. So in an adult, the reason why quad's great, you can take the central third and you'll have tons of tendon left. The last thing you want is like in a seven-year-old and you've got six millimeter quad tendon and you're taking the middle of it out and then you're suddenly left with very little tendon or very small graft. And as you mentioned with the hamstrings, because they're long, you can kind of shape it to whatever size you want. So yeah, absolutely. I think it, it differs based on their age and how skeletally mature they are. All right, Drew, same question, but now the kid is 16, middle linebacker. We'll call him Fred Warner. (laughs) what graft would you use for fred is he skeletally mature like are his growth plates closed he's got a beard growth beard yeah (laughs) skeletally mature already yeah already trying to play in college but really wants to play the next season as well yeah i would use a btb acl i think in the high level athlete that's my preference i think it's has the strongest track record i think it not a that high level activity. So that'd be my choice. What about you? What would you choose? I would do hamstring. So we're three different graphs, which is fantastic because I think that's what the challenge for patients is that you see three people who talk pretty much every day and we have three different choices and they all work. I think what Nerev brought up was really important. I wouldn't just do hamstring. I would add in some sort of suture augmentation and I would do a lateral based procedure as well on these high level athletes because The recent data that's come out suggests that each of those individually will lower your failure rate. So if you do a lateral extraarticular tenodesis, plus add something inside to take up some of the tension, especially initially, I'm not sure it'll get the athletes back faster, but I think our re-rupture rates over time are going to go from that 8 to 12% down to the 4 to 5%. Yeah, and I think it's it's how do we prevent that retear, because I think that's, we know the outcomes of going back to sports after a, you know, a second ACL surgery, just so poor. So what can we do to, to, 
to have whatever graft you're comfortable with and you choose, how can you optimize the recovery from that? And I think there's multiple things we can do. So we'll kind of wrap up here. Excellent conversation in terms of ACL graft choices. I think it's something we're all passionate about. And patients come in are increasingly as they're getting more information, are passionate about what they may choose and, and obviously a lot of considerations. But thank you again, everyone, for listening to our podcast. You can check us out on the web at 6to8weekspodcast.com. Wherever you get your podcast, Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts, check us out. Leave us your feedback, download our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and uh, we look forward to uh, having you listen to us in the future. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks, perspectives in medicine. What do you think of this topic? Connect with us now. In addition to finding our contact form, you'll also find our social media links in our entire six to eight weeks episode archive. Help us grow our listenership by liking, subscribing, and sharing everywhere. We're eager to hear from you, and we'll be sending you more great thought-provoking content in less than six to eight weeks.